Welcome to the Trinity Church Aberdeen podcast, where you can listen to our most recent sermons. To find out more about who we are and what we believe, visit trinityaberdeen.org.uk. So Exodus chapter 1, we're going to read the whole chapter. So let's listen to God's words to us. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. This is God's words to us. Now tonight as we get into Exodus, uh, we're going to be thinking a little bit about stories. Exodus is one of the, probably one of the world's most famous stories in all the world. Um, Major moments like the plagues, the crossing of the Red Sea, the Ten Commandments. It's a bit of a blockbuster really. Um, I wonder perhaps what your favorite story is. You know, if you've got a favorite book or a film um, that just kind of gets, gets under your skin a bit the characters, uh, the plot, perhaps a rom-com, a thriller, I don't know. There's something strange that goes on as uh, we read or watch or listen to a good story. 
Now, obviously, we just kind of get into it and enjoy it. But under the surface, that story that we're enjoying is actually trying to teach us something. Teach us something about how the world works. It's trying to communicate something to us. I mean, with kids' stuff, it's often a lot easier to see. So I'm not patronizing you here. It's just more helpful to see. You know, Bob the Builder, if you work hard together, life will go well. It's, it's, it's easy to see. Or the old Disney stuff, you know, be beautiful, marry a rich prince, and you're going to live happily ever after. And it's a story, actually, we've bought into. Well, just think of modern Disney. Be true to yourself. Live out your dreams, and you'll be fulfilled and happy. Again, it's a story actually every school is teaching our children uh, the whole time. And the thing is, under the surface, we're all living by a story like that, whether we think about it or not. I don't know, perhaps it's the story of progress. Our world is going to get better and better as long as we look after the planet. Or perhaps the story of karma. Do good and life will go well with you. Do bad and you'll pay for it. Or perhaps the story just of self-fulfillment. I need to do what I want to do and that's going to be best. The thing is, God says there's actually a right story to live by. His story. And it's not just a story we enjoy and get into, you know, hearing what's gone on in the world and to his people, however good that may be. It's a story that's real. It really is how the world works And so it actually teaches us how to live in it. An exodus that we're going to get into, it's it's part of that big story of God's plan of the world. But the strange thing about exodus is it's kind of like the the big story in miniature. It's a little bit like a Russian doll, you know, that that tiny lookalike of the big doll. It's it's a book, actually, that we're going to see that, that bleeds into the rest of the Bible. You'll find it everywhere. And that's important to see because it actually means it's our story. That's our story because it's part of our family history. It's about our forefathers, about Moses and our brothers and sisters of a different generation. We've, we've been joined into God's people and so Exodus is our story. But more than that, it's our story because Exodus is this lens onto the bigger story of life. As we read it, we're going to see a picture, an image, a shadow of our salvation in him. These events that we're going to get into, they point us forward, point us beyond to the greater story, God's story of the whole of creation. Just think, just think, it's Exodus actually that lays the dramatic backdrop for the greatest moment in all of history. As Jesus ate the bread and wine before his death on the cross, what was he doing? He was celebrating Passover central event of Exodus. So here in chapter one, as we get into it, the the writer, he's setting the scene for us here. It's the intro. And he's doing it knowing that Exodus is going to be part of something much bigger. So to help us get into this chapter, we're going to see it's asking and answering three questions just to help us. Firstly, what are we doing here? Uh, Secondly, why is it so hard? And then thirdly, is there any hope? So firstly, what are we doing here? What are we doing here? You know, as we look at our lives, these kind of big stories, we we take a look at what's going on. A vital thought that should come to us is, well, why are we on this massive ball of rock spinning again and again around a giant ball of hot gas? Like, what's the point? What are we doing here? Is there any purpose? 
Well, Exodus doesn't itself answer that question, but it does point us back to the bits of the Bible that do. Because Exodus is the second book of the Bible, and it knows it. Verse 1 in the, in the original actually starts with an and. It's following straight on from Genesis. And it assumes you know what happened before. Verse 1 We've got these list of the, uh, in verse 2, the list of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Right there, we're, we're being pointed to a family with a history. Jacob and Joseph and his brothers. If you know any of Genesis, the story of the kind of the technicolor coat will probably be the one you know. And the writer's saying, don't forget Genesis. You need, you need it fresh in your mind if you're going to get Exodus. And sequels always do this. Uh, don't they? It's like, a, I don't know, the beginning of Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back, say. It's intro speaks of the Death Star. It's like, don't forget the first film. Or the fourth film, you know. But, but then it's um, verse 7. It's verse 7 that really gets our minds going. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, why is he telling us that? Well, first of all, with all this mention of Jacob, we're taking back to Jacob's family, and particularly his grandfather, Abraham, the founding father. Why? Because it's with him we get promises that this verse reminds us of. God makes big promises to Abraham. Uh, Genesis 12, he promises that Israel are going to be a great nation, and those who bless them will be blessed, those who curse them will be cursed. Then Genesis 15, God promises again to Abraham that the nation are going to be afflicted in a foreign land and then brought back to the land of Canaan, a promised land. And then Genesis 17, 12, 15, 17, 17, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. So God made a covenant with Abraham. God bound himself to Abraham, established a new relationship with him and his family saying, I'm going to be your God and I'm going to give you a place to live. It's a covenant of grace that embraces the rest of the Bible. And here in Exodus, you've now got a fruitful, a big nation. They're not 70 anymore. And they're in the midst of Egypt. Will Egypt be this nation to curse or bless them? Will this be the nation that afflicts them? And if so, will God remember his covenant? Will he bring them home? So Exodus is pointing us to Abraham, to God's promises to him. But if we know Genesis, and the writer does assume we do, we're going to know Abraham isn't the beginning of the story. Actually, the covenant with Abraham is the second covenant. There's a first, one back in Eden. Abraham comes on the scene because things went wrong in Eden, Adam and Eve. Just listen to Genesis 1 and see if it sounds familiar. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. God has always had a plan for his people, always had a purpose for us. He had made us to be image bearers. That means people who reflect his character, who worship him, who spread the knowledge of him across the world, people who who live in relationship with him and are blessed by him. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it, made to glorify God and enjoy him forever. To be blessed 
worshippers, I suppose. Blessed worshippers. What are we doing here? Well, Exodus is pointing us back by this language in the first few verses, back to Genesis 1. We're here to be blessed worshippers. That might sound a bit strange, to be worshippers. But actually, if we look at the people around us, we look at our own lives, we know that's the way we're actually wired. We're wired as worshippers. We love to exalt something other than us, to make that thing the most important thing in our life. Now, in a lot of cultures, it's some sort of god or deity, But in our society, it's a bit different, isn't it? Because we don't call them that. But worship of money, worship of success, of family, football, most fundamentally of all, worship of ourselves. It's all there. We just need to spend a few weeks with someone and you'll start to get an idea of what they worship. And that's because we're made as worshipers. But we're made to be worshipers of God, the creator God, the unique, self-sufficient Lord, the great I am, blessed worshippers and there's always been an outward movement to to what worship looks like there's always been that command to be fruitful to multiply to spread across the earth to reveal his glory everywhere it's both in number more and more people but also in terms of geography everywhere God's kingdom it's not limited it's for everyone everywhere it's a bit like the best friendship group you know, it's not a, it's, sorry, it's a, it's a group of happy, caring people, but they're not a clique. You know, they invite everyone and anyone to join in. It's blessed worshippers multiplying. Exodus 1 verse 7, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Here's God's people, Abraham's family, blessed worshippers multiplying. In other words, despite the mess Adam and Eve made of things, because of his promises to Abraham, God is making sure that his purpose, that good life, it's becoming a reality. It's a new start emerging in the midst of a sinful world. Imagine it like one of those kind of nature programs. You've got loads of rotten and dead wood and plants. It's kind of black and lifeless, but then a bright green shoot breaks through and it's kind of its leaves gloriously unfurled. There's life. That's God's people. We're beginning to see here again of what we're doing here. Blessed worshippers multiplying. That's the trajectory of the world. That's the purpose of it all. And we live in a world that's got rid of God, so it's end up trying to make up meaning and purpose. We don't really know why we're here and what we're doing, so we just, we just kind of pick and choose with no actual reason apart from it sounding good. But just because we live in a society that's got rid of it, that doesn't mean there is no purpose. It's still there for people, men and women, boys and girls, to be in a wonderful friendship and communion with God himself, glorifying him in everything we do. This is life in all its fullness. As Christians, you know, we haven't just dropped out of the sky 2,000 years ago with something isolated and totally new. No, we're part of this same purpose. We're to live out our lives, every bit of them, from our work to our leisure, from our family to our friends, all lived out for God's glory and worship of him. God has such a wonderfully full and rich view of life. It's a blessing as we do, to be multiplying the people of God. 
whether through having babies in Christian homes and bringing them up to know him or through sharing the good news with those around us, we we long for the people of God to be like verse seven. The people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So here in Exodus 1, there are positive signs. God's purpose is emerging. But Israel weren't home yet, were they? And actually, they're about to see life wasn't as it was meant to be. So the scene of this great drama is still unfolding because even if there's purpose in the world, even if being blessed worshippers multiplying is what life is meant to be like, we know, we know our experience is still really hard. It's, it's a mess, it's difficult, there's sin, there's pain and hurt. So if the first question was, what are we doing here? Well, the next question that finds its way onto our lips and on the pages of Exodus is this. Well, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard? And, and in Exodus, the answer to the question is right there in verse 8. Now, there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. So a new king's in town, a king who either has forgotten or decided to forget about Joseph, the man who saved Egypt from disaster. And he sees God's people doing what they're meant to be doing, growing in number, And he sets himself against them. He sets himself against God's purposes and promises. And if they were enjoying life, living life in its fullness, well then Pharaoh brings death. He's a man set on robbing people of life. And he does it in two stages. Stage one is slavery, and it is brutal. He rounds them up, sets violent rulers over them, these taskmasters, And it quickly ramps up, verse 13, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Pharaoh's strategy, it's rob them of life. It's suck any joy out of their existence. Make them perpetual workers so they become the living dead. And all in the hope that he robs them of the good life. They'll give up their worship. Give up their enjoyment of the marriage bed and become like mules. But it seems that slavery isn't enough. So Pharaoh takes it to the unsurprising next step. His anti-life policies turn to murder. Infanticide. Killing baby boys. Firstly by getting the midwives to do it. As the baby's born. And then verse 16 he says. um, if, If it's a son. You should kill him. And then as that doesn't work, he gets the whole of Egypt to do it. Verse 22, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. It's horrific, isn't it? Now, why just the sons? Probably he was nervous about the military threat, so getting rid of boys empties them of an army. Perhaps there was a longer-term strategy of intermarriage too. That's why he left the girls. We don't know. But, but here were the two great weapons of fear, slavery and death. Pharaoh wasn't the first to use them. He certainly wasn't the last. 
the Romans enslaved, the Nazis, Soviet Russia with its gulags and mass killings, the the LRA in Central Africa, North Korea, any despot fearful of his position, hungry for power, has turned to these weapons. It is power at its cruelest, isn't it? Anti-life, breaking a people until their humanity disappears. And ever since Christ, it's been used against Christians again and again and again, from Nero in the first century AD uh, to, to Islamic regimes in the 21st century, like northern Nigeria and Somalia. As Christians have sworn allegiance to a different God, to the true God, to the God of grace uh, in Christ, so they've been persecuted for it. Even here in the UK, those in power are beginning to put pressure on us to stop living lives as blessed worshippers multiplying. Instead, they're just getting us to swear allegiance to their gods, otherwise face the consequences. You know, as people are told to, to celebrate pride or worry for their jobs. Pressure to affirm transgender ideology, otherwise they, they worry there might be a knock on the door from the police. It's anti-life. But as we've said before, Exodus points us to even more than just a nation under slavery of another nation. It points us to the deeper story, one that began in Genesis 3. As we get into Exodus more and more, we're going to see this as a grand contest. On the surface, it's Pharaoh, but more between a pretender to the throne, the face of evil itself against the true God, the Lord, Yahweh. There's a bigger stage one of Satan against God. This is a a picture of the bigger spiritual realities in our world. We're seeing here, as as one commentator put it, an an analogy to the life of the soul. As we look at Israel enslaved facing death, so we see the plight of humanity, wrecked by sin, yes, but also enslaved. And not to a foreign power, but as Jesus tells us, enslaved to sin with death hanging over us. Now these aren't invented by the devil, are they? They are the natural and just consequences of our own sin. We're responsible for the mess the world's in. Our hearts, isn't it? Our hearts love to sin. It's been said the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. We're deceived by sin, we love sin, we're enslaved by sin, and as we reject the God of life, as we reject life of fullness and blessing, no wonder, we face this punishment of death. It sits over us all. And these then become the two weapons used by the devil. Our world is not just a world of flesh and blood, but instead, as Paul puts it, there are cosmic powers over the present darkness, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. I know that's a bit of a weird thing to think about in our society, I know some of you come from parts of the world where there's a, a bigger engagement with spiritual forces, but not, not in the West, really, is it? But the Bible doesn't shy away from it. Somehow, there are spiritual forces in this world set against what God is doing in the world, anti-life. That They take up what's gone in the world and lay it heavily on our backs. They make us work ruthlessly for our new master sin. That's why life is hard. Why relationships spark. Why death robs us of loved ones. Why we see injustice on our news feeds. Our world is, is, is scrounging around for answers to the problem in life, but we always go to the things outside of us. The problem must be climate change. The problem's the government. The problem's others constraining me. But God's answer is spiritual. 
Life's hard because there's sin, sin from inside, and spiritual forces using it against us. Now, if this is something you knew this evening, is it, is it changing how you approach hard things? I don't know, perhaps you've got a besetting sin, you're frustrated with your, your sharp tongue, your, your impatient spirit, or perhaps your battle with lust or laziness. And perhaps the, I don't know, the enemy's really throwing mud at you. you know, you're the worst, you're, the, the, you're not worth God's love. Or perhaps the opposite, it's not that bad, enslaving you further. Well, how do we respond to that? What's your line of attack? Is it, is it blame? Or they made me do it? Or I just need a good night's sleep? I'm, I'm actually quite proud in heart. Or do we remember there's a spiritual battle in, at play? Do you pray? Do you ask for Jesus' help? Do you spend a moment dwelling on his promises? Do you repent rather than making excuses? Or... or for another example, perhaps right now, death really weighs heavily on your heart. There's a fear. And it drains life out of your day. Worry kicks in. You stay indoors to keep everything as safe as possible. Do you see the weapon of the devil at work? Does your heart believe him? Or does it look to the empty tomb and Christ himself? Why is it hard? Because there's an enemy prowling like a lion. I hope you're starting to see how Exodus, although this story of a small nation in Egypt thousands of years ago, how it's actually our story. Well, if that's the bad news to finish, is there any hope? Is there any hope? That's the last question in this opening scene. And it's the question often on our hearts. Sometimes life can just feel too much, can't it? And in the dark hours of the night, that that question can just gush out, is there any hope? Well, the whole of the book of Exodus will give us this, answer this question in dramatic style. But there are glorious hints in this passage. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. Verse 20, So God dwelt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. There's this striking kind of irony to what's going on here. The harder Pharaoh pushed, the more he failed. He enslaved them, they multiplied. He got the midwives involved, and they had big families. The whole strategy, in fact, probably stirred in the people of God a deep desire to leave Egypt that had never been there before. It's glorious, isn't it? The villain strikes and it works against him. Nothing can stop God. Nothing can hold him back. He even uses the enemy's plans for his ends. God keeps his promises to make Israel into a great nation. Pharaoh believed he was God. He believed he could call the shots, but he's got nothing on the true God. People in this world, we, we try and try to create our own kingdoms, I don't know, giant empires or own little home, but whatever we do, kingdoms just come and go. Their weapons cannot stand. And it's not just true of earthly kingdoms, but spiritual forces. I think sometimes we can be tempted to think there's this kind of eternal battle of good and evil, kind of an eternal dualism, like the yin-yang, moving and shifting, but kind of in balance. 
And I know cultures that can be tempted to treat the devil like that, actually as a rival to God, as a power to be feared and honored. Absolutely not. God is unparalleled. He is the uncreated one. He is sovereign over all things. The devil's best efforts amount to nothing. He's still only a creature, still beholden to the awesome power of God. He can do anything only, only because God in his sovereign plan and power has allowed it. And the way God works just shows it. He keeps his promises by turning plans of death into plentiful life. And he does it the whole time. The worst weapons the devil has can be turned and twisted to generate life, fullness, blessed worshipers multiplying. Just think of the cross. The great attempt of the devil and the world's kingdoms to crush the Son of God's. And all it did was make a spectacle of them. Show how utterly powerless they are as sin was paid for and death was smashed open. As Christ rose from the dead, God's king sitting eternally on his throne. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. Is there hope? You bet there is. Victory. It always has been and always will be God's. It's exciting, isn't it? The world is not just as it seems. It's not just an endless cycle of pain and misery. It's not just live hard and die young. There's a creator God who's at work in this world. A God of grace who's powerfully changing history, keeping his promises to his son and his people. And it's not as if we just stand on the sidelines watching We can join in. He uses us, little old you and me, in powerful ways. This story has two wonderful women, fearless women, Pua and Shifra, commanded by Pharaoh to kill the baby boys. Verse 17, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. These women, they understood the world they were in. They saw the battle for what it was and they feared God. They held him in esteem and honor, not the fake God Pharaoh. They lived in light of God's purposes, God's promises, and they lived for life. They lived not as a weapon of despotic fear, but as a subversive bringer of life, blessed worshipers multiplying. Now this wasn't easy to do, was it? They did this at the risk of their own lives. And we could spend a lot of time trying to work out if they did it in the best way. Did they lie? Should they have lied? But what we do know is that their hearts were after God. And God blessed them for it. What an encouragement to us, isn't it? In yours and in my little spheres of life, whether we're a midwife or a mechanic, a child or an adult, God's purposes can be worked out. As we fear God, we do what he says, even when the world is against us, even as the the powers crack down, our friends mock us, even then God can use our little faith, the small mustard seed of fear of him in our hearts, and he can show his power. We live, we live on this stage of God's world, God's story, and it is hard Sin and Satan beset us. 
But there is hope. God has not given up on us. He sent his son and his resurrection power blasts through this world, leading us home, even us. Blessed worshipers multiplying. Amen.